0: So we're now in part seven, hard to believe, time flies, uh, of this series, What Lies Ahead. In the last couple of weeks, we've been continuing our discussion of the rapture. And uh, I know from some of the feedback of those watching it online, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there about the rapture, and a lot of people don't believe in the rapture. And so um, they, uh, they see rapture in the title here, they watch a few minutes of it, and they just dismiss it. And, uh, you know, send me an email saying, oh, you're nuts, you know. So that's okay. We want to expose as many people as we can to the truth. And I hope by now you recognize that my goal is to, to lay out the case from Scripture and to plainly let the Scripture speak for itself. And I know good people disagree. I respect that. Um, but I want you to dive into the Word of God yourself and come to your own conclusion. Don't just take my word for it. Um, I think that's the problem is a lot of people have done that. They've uh, taken the Word... Of some you know less uh, re- reliable sources uh, who have hastily dismissed the teaching of the rapture and uh, and then they become entrenched in that view and if they can break free from that and actually get back to the Word of God and really dig into the plain normal reading of the text uh, they'll find out that uh, the rapture is indeed the blessed hope and it's uh, really something uh, to be excited about and look forward to. So in today's session we want to talk about the rapture at any moment, that's the notion of imminency. And I'm going to give you some biblical teaching uh, and proof of this doctrine of imminency. As we've been saying each week, this is uh, tracking sort of uh, chapter by chapter with uh, my book by the same title, What Lies Ahead, A Biblical Overview of the End Times. We have some on the table uh, which we've now moved to the back. I love it there. By the way, I'm not sure who did that, but thanks for doing that. Um, and uh, if you don't have one already, you can pick one of those up. And if you're watching online, you can pick one up uh, using the discount code WLA for What Lies Ahead uh, from the the Not By Work Store. So we always want to review, so we can kind of make sure we keep this in the flow and in context. We started out by reminding uh, ourselves of the reason we study Bible prophecy. Why does it matter? Why is it important? And we looked at several reasons. From Scripture, and then some practical ones as well, and that is that one sixth of the Bible is is prophecy, or one third of the Bible is prophecy, and one sixth of that has yet to be fulfilled. So, um, you know, uh, I was uh, talking indirectly with a church uh, here just recently. uh, The former pastor and I were talking, and they were looking uh, to replace him, and he and I were talking about some of the candidates that they had on their slate, and we he was telling me that none of them have any interest in Bible prophecy and I said well that's interesting I wonder why a church would, would even think about hiring a pastor that believes in 5 sixths of the Bible you know is he going to be 5 sixths of a pastor uh, you know that's the problem and yet that's where most people are and then we we started in Genesis and we've been kind of working our way through talking about God's kingdom promise and the covenant behind the promise that, that guarantees God's future earthly kingdom precisely as it's laid out in the Old Testament a literal grammatical historical understanding of scripture also leads you to a clear distinction between God's program for the church and God's program for Israel. And then that brings us into the church age where we continue to wait patiently for the kingdom as God's people have uh, really since the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, Again, we've talked about how even in the garden you saw an early allusion to Christ's defeat of Satan one day, but the details weren't there. The details really begin to be spelled out in Genesis 12 and following And uh, so God's people, Israel, and today God's people, the church, have been waiting patiently for that kingdom, but it hasn't happened yet. Then we introduce the subject of the rapture, and we talk about how it's a mystery. That's a key term that most people overlook. We've talked again and again about it. A mystery simply means something previously undisclosed that is now being revealed. Uh, So if you don't see a distinction between the Old and the New Testament, between Israel and the church, Uh, then you're not going to understand that the rapture is something unique and special, a new development in God's plan. Not a new development from His perspective, of course, because He's God, He's timeless, and this is all part of His uh, sovereign plan. But from the the vantage point of time, space, and matter, from our perspective, this was something newly revealed, a new uh, plan. And then uh, we talked about the outpouring of uh, God's wrath. And that being the tribulation, uh, variously referred to by a number of different names, the tribulation, the great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the day of the Lord's wrath, the great day of the Lord, the overflowing scourge, many different names for it in the Old Testament prophets. Um, and we talked about how we have been promised that we won't face the wrath of God, which is, in essence, the purpose of the rapture, to rescue us from the wrath of God. And then we closed out last week by looking at Second Thessalonians 2, I've had a few people email me. I'll make the same offer. Uh, the article that I wrote on the rapture in Second Thessalonians 2 is you know, under the premium content on the Not Bill Works website, but I'll give it out to anybody that would like it. Just shoot me an email, and I think there's still a few copies on the back table here at the church. So again, the, the big picture chart here, the rapture is the next great prophetic event. Uh, to which the world looks forward, it will essentially start the clock ticking on God's end times plan, that final one-sixth of the plan that is going to unfold in rapid succession. The rapture will be followed by a seven-year tribulation period, that 70th week of Daniel, which we're going to get to here in the coming weeks, possibly next week, depending on how far we get today. And then it's the, the second coming, and then the establishment of the kingdom, the millennial phase of the kingdom on the old heaven and the old earth during which Satan is uh, locked up in prison and largely uh, held in check though not entirely and then he'll be released at the end of that thousand year millennium for one final battle where he will of course lose when Christ with the word casts him into the everlasting fire where the beast and the false prophet have been for the last thousand years at that point and then all things are made new and all of creation is restored back to its pre-fall Uh, Edenic state. So we said, what is the rapture? The rapture, uh, just to review, is the sudden catching up of believers to meet the Lord in the air when he returns at the close of the present age. I won't take the time to go back and uh, review all of the verses that we've looked at previously, just for the sake of time. But this is not, as some people naively and ignorantly say, some kind of a made-up doctrine. It is a biblical term. The term rapture is used in the Bible. It is plainly taught to be rescued from some impending danger uh, or harm. Uh, There are key passages on the rapture. We looked at Several of these already, and we'll come back to 1 Thessalonians 4 again and again. Uh, But the key term that is used here is harpazo, to be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And again, that means to rescue from threatening danger. The Latin translation of the Bible by Jerome in the 400s used the word rapire, which is where we get the word rapture to translate harpazo, to to snatch away or to rescue from uh, threatening danger. Rescued from what? We make... We talked about that a lot because that's a big deal. This is one of those straw men that people who don't believe in the rapture create. They claim that those who believe in the rapture teach that we're going to be rescued before we have to suffer or before it gets really bad. Nobody teaches that, that I know of, that believes in the rapture. That is a complete fabrication. What the doctrine of the rapture and those who promote it teaches is that we will be rescued before the day of the Lord's wrath. Remember, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 says that Jesus delivers us or rescues us from the wrath to come. In fact, the New American Standard actually translates that word as rescue, that we will be rescued from the wrath to come. Some people say, well, it just means He's going to rescue us out of the midst of the wrath. Well, how can it be the wrath to come if we're already in the middle of it? He's talking about rescuing us from something that's going to happen in the future. I mean, that's a plain, normal reading of that passage. Um, why because God has not appointed us the church to suffer wrath but to obtain deliverance that salvation there remember salvation doesn't always refer to eternal salvation of the soul which comes by faith alone in Christ alone it can mean, in fact 58 percent of the time the word is used it means deliverance from some physical or threatening danger or harm or sickness that kind of thing that's what he means here that the church is going to be delivered through Christ at the rapture from the wrath that is uh, to come. So we've talked a lot about the wrath and how important that is. We've talked about how in God's plan of the ages, we're sitting here in the last days, what the Bible calls the last days, the church age. And just prior to the establishment of the kingdom, which is the next age and the final age, there will be this culmination of the long-awaited prophetic wrath of God, the, the what's called the 70th week of Daniel. Now, I've used that term a lot, and we're going to define it here probably probably next week but it just means this final seven year period of a 490 year prophetic plan that the prophet Daniel laid out he laid that out in Daniel chapter 9 483 years of it have already come to pass and we know that because he tells us when it's going to start and he tells us when the 483 third year will end and then he also tells us when that final seven years will start and I'll give you a clue. It starts with the unveiling of the Antichrist. And then for seven years, he will reign uh, in, in satanic wickedness. And there will be this cosmic struggle between the wrath of Satan. It's the, it's the Greek word orge, and the wrath of God, also same word, being poured out. And Satan is trying to kill, steal, and destroy in its most extreme sense. He's trying to get everybody to worship him. He's uh, propagating through the help of his... Uh, second in command, the, the, what the Bible calls the false prophet, uh, the mark of the beast. And he's trying to get everybody to take the mark of the beast. Meanwhile, God is sending 144,000 Jewish witnesses throughout the whole world to, to preach the gospel for one final time in the seven-year period, while at the same time pouring out wrath after wrath after wrath to get everyone's attention to say there is a God, sin is terrible, sin, sin comes with a steep judgment. You better come to the Lord. Come one, come all. It's a freely offered gift. All you have to do is receive it by faith. But if you don't, by the end of that seven-year period, it's done. You won't have another opportunity uh, after that. It's appointed unto men once to die, and after that, the judgment. So looking at it from the perspective of the book of Revelation, which, by the way, is not by any means the only book in the Bible that talks about the wrath of God and the tribulation period, As I've mentioned, many of the prophets of old talked about it in the Old Testament, and Jesus, of course, outlined it in great detail in the uh, Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, and Mark 13 and Luke 21. Um, But but Revelation is kind of a nice, neat, succinct blow-by-blow of all that's going to happen during that seven-year period, the seal trumpet and bold judgments and so forth. But this period right here from chapter 6 to chapter 18, uh, is known as the wrath of God. The tribulation period. Uh, when chapter 6 opens, it opens in verse 1 with the unveiling of the Antichrist. By the time the seal judgments have been opened and begun to be poured out on the earth, people are crying out, the great day of his wrath has come. Who can stand? Revelation 6, 17. And uh, so these judgments of God constitute the wrath of God. Seven seals, followed by seven trumpets, followed by seven bowls. And we've talked about that previously, so I won't uh, go into it again. Uh, So the rapture is not the same thing as the second coming. The rapture happens uh, at the end of the church age. It's the next prophetic event uh, that will happen. It is imminent, as we're going to talk about this morning, and then it follows, uh, what follows it are all of the rest of the end times prophecies that the Bible talks about. The second coming, by contrast, is by no means imminent. It happens at a very specific prescribed time, You can come at it from any number of angles. You know it's not going to happen until the end of the seven years. You know that the seven years is going to have sealed trumpet, and bold judgments. It's going to have things like the abomination of desolation where the Antichrist says that he is God and everyone must worship him at the midpoint of the tribulation three and a half years in. He sets himself up on the temple in the the, the satanic temple, the tribulation temple. Uh, And then... uh, There are a lot of things that have to happen before the second coming. So if if you have A, B, C, D, if you make a list of things that have to happen, and the second coming is like number 15 on the list, there's no way you can say the second coming is imminent, can you? Because it can't happen at any moment. It cannot happen until items 1 through 14, just picking those numbers, have already happened. The rapture, by contrast, if you make a list of things that are going to happen next, is number 1. There's nothing that has to happen before the rapture. And if you look at the appendix in my book, What Lies Ahead, called Sequential Order of End Times Events, guess what number one on the list is? The rapture. Second coming comes way down uh, the the list somewhere. So uh, the contrasts are pretty clear if you compare just the two key passages. And again, there are many passages that speak about the rapture. There are other passages that speak about the second coming. But the, the key ones are 1 Thessalonians 4 and Revelation 19. At the rapture, He comes in the air. At the second coming, He comes all the way to the earth. At the rapture, only the saved are in view. At the second coming, both saved and unsaved are in view, the sheep and the goats. At the rapture, the dead are raised to life. Remember, He said the dead in Christ will be raised first. They're given their glorified bodies. Whereas at the second coming, it's the living that are sent to death. So that at the end of the, sec- at the, end of the tribulation, at the second coming, any human being on earth who survived the tribulation, which remember there will be millions that are killed during the tribulation. At one point, one quarter of the earth's population is killed. Another, later on, another one-third of what's left is killed. So a lot of death and bloodshed during the tribulation. But those who survive at the coming of the Christ, if they've never placed their faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, at that moment they are cast into the lake of fire. So think about it. When Christ comes back at the second coming to inaugurate the kingdom, and it begins with the big wedding feast and marriage uh, supper and so forth, the only people alive on earth at that moment will be believers. So the kingdom begins with nothing but believers, both those in their glorified bodies like the church who's come back with Christ, Old Testament saints that are resurrected at the the second coming according to Daniel 12 and Isaiah 26 so there'll be people in their glorified bodies of all ages there'll be people in their physical mortal bodies who survived the tribulation and were saved in other words they trusted Christ during the tribulation and that's who then populates the earth but a thousand years is a long time and over that one thousand years as people procreate and babies are born and they grow up Like all human beings, they will be born dead in their trespasses and sins, and they, like all human beings, must personally trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. Some will, some won't. So over time, eventually the millennial phase of the kingdom will be filled with believers and unbelievers. But I want you to understand that at the start of it, only believers will be alive on earth in their physical bodies. It's just the opposite at the rapture. One minute after the rapture, Every single human being on earth in flesh and blood bodies is an unbeliever. Unbeliever. That's all that's left. Can you imagine that? You think it's bad now when there's believers all throughout the earth through the influence of the Holy Spirit helping to restrain sin. When that influence is taken away and the church goes to meet the Lord in the air, it's going to be horrific. But similar to after the millennium, over time, even though it's only a smaller period of time, seven years, uh, people will get saved. Because right at the start of the seven-year tribulation, God is going to set aside supernaturally 144,000 missionaries. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Yet another reason that we understand the tribulation to be completely Jewish in nature. It has nothing to do with the church, right? And then they are going to go throughout the whole earth in fulfillment of Matthew 24, 14, and preach the gospel. And many will respond in faith. And over time, you'll see a great population... Of believers that arises. Yeah? Could that number be symbolic because there's no way to reconstruct the tribes? Right? No. None of those numbers in Revelation are symbolic. Mean the, meaning the symbolic of the Jews, the 12 tribes? Meaning, because there's no way left to let the tribes. Well, just because we don't know who the 12 tribes are doesn't mean God doesn't know who the 12 tribes are. So God will soup, it's a supernatural event. And we don't know a lot about the mechanics of it. All we see is sort of the marching orders, that he regathers 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, and you're right, we don't know these days, although there's some great resources out there that suggest that in some circles they do know, that there have been historical records kept, and we just, they're just not privy to the general public. But let's say, for example, that we don't know, God knows, and he's going to supernaturally bring out... These 12,000 uh, from each of the 12 tribes, which constitute 144,000 missionaries, he's going to seal them to protect them from the Antichrist, and then they're going to go out and, and spread the gospel. So, is that believed that's all the Christians that will become from the tribulation time period, or is that just the missionaries? Ones that no, that's just the missionaries. No, great question. That's not, you know, some people teach that's the only people that get saved uh, in the tribulation. Not true at all. In fact, the Bible doesn't even really tell us how they get saved, except that we know from comparing Scripture with Scripture and that the Bible can't contradict itself, that those 144,000 themselves must also believe the Gospel. God might have just gathered them on a hillside and used a, you know, a, a big microphone or something, I don't know, or He might have dropped tracks down or something, but somehow they hear and believe the Gospel, so then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, the only way you can be saved then they become the missionaries. But we know from Revelation 7 that the fruit of their missionary endeavors is people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language that get saved. uh, Untold numbers. And of the numbers that get saved, many of them will be martyred. They'll They'll be beheaded because they didn't take the mark of the beast. But many will survive. I got an email about that this week from somebody uh, who wanted to know if all believers are martyred, who's left to inhabit the kingdom? Well, they aren't all martyred. That's what Jesus talked about in the Olive Discourse. Go into the hills and hide out in the caves and flee to the mountains, and many will survive. And when Jesus comes back at the second coming, not the rapture, but the second coming at the end of the tribulation, there will be many people alive on earth. Half of them will be belie- or you know, a portion of them will be believers. A portion of them will be unbelievers. It's the sheep and the goats. And what does he say to the sheep? Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom. To the goats he says, Depart from me, I never knew you. Right. So there has to be people that survive the tribulation. Jesus says that those believers who physically survive until the end of the tribulation will be the ones that get to inherit the kingdom in bodily form. So uh, great points, great questions. Um, So, again, at the rapture, believers go from earth to heaven to meet the Lord in the air, whereas at the second coming we return with Him from heaven uh, to earth. The rapture is followed by a tribulation period and a time of wrath. That is, in fact, why we have the rapture, to rescue us from that wrath. The second coming is followed by a millennial phase where Christ physically takes the throne and rules and reigns in a rod of iron. The rapture, therefore, is imminent, meaning it could happen at any time, whereas the second coming clearly cannot happen at any time. It can only happen following certain clear events and signs. The rapture was not foretold in the Old Testament. It was a mystery. The second coming is, in fact, predicted in the Old Testament again and again. The purpose of the rapture is to rescue. The purpose of the second coming is to judge. Remember, Christ comes back with a sword proceeding out of his mouth and uh, to tread the winepress of the wrath and fury of Almighty God. Uh, the rapture is a message of comfort. That's why we call it the blessed hope. The second coming is a message of warning and judgment. In fact, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus uses a series of parables or analogies, if you will. We call them watchfulness parables in which he reminds the future nation of Israel. You've got to remember the context the, the, the Olivet Discourse took place on Wednesday night of Passion Week. The next night, Thursday, he's in the upper room washing the disciples' feet, instituting the Lord's Supper, and then uh, later on in that evening is betrayed in the garden, and then everything happens in rapid succession. He's arrested, tried, crucified, and laid in the tomb early Friday morning. So this is just hours before all that happens. It's Wednesday night. He's, he has not revealed the rapture yet. The rapture is still at this point completely unknown, only in the mind of God. It was the next night in the upper room where, for the first time ever on planet Earth, the rapture is referenced when Jesus tells his closest disciples, uh, If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, that where I am, you may be also. And that is a reference. To the rapture. So on Wednesday night in the Olivet discourse, even though a lot of people who don't understand the progress of revelation and don't understand literal grammatical historical hermeneutics accurately, they try to put the rapture in the Olivet discourse. It's not there. He's only talking about the second coming, and specifically he's talking to Israel. And so uh, he says in that uh, passage that you know you need to be ready. You know, watch out. Even in, even though it's clearly going to happen at a prescribed time. Uh, the first advent was happened happened at a prescribed time, didn't it? The first advent was pretty clear when it you know when it was going to happen and how what it was going to look like and how it was going to unfold. I mean, how many virgins had a child in a town called Bethlehem? I mean, I only know of one, and that was clearly predicted in the Old Testament. And yet, the first century Jews missed it entirely. The nation, the national, was not everyone, but the nation and leaders. And the same thing can happen a second time. And so Jesus issues a warning. Be not deceived. Be not deceived. Be not deceived. He says that four or five times in the Olivet Discourse. And then he gives these watchfulness parables. And he talks about, you uh, you know, be ready. If the owner of the house had known what time the robber was going to come in, he would have been ready. And the ten virgins, you know, five weren't ready. They didn't have enough oil in their lamps. And, you know, he goes on and on with these watchfulness parables, which by the way and I'm really digressing now but it's it's I think it's important to point this out uh, the analogy of noah is completely mishandled by both but by, by most teachers of bible prophecy including a lot of people that I've shared the platform with and that I know and love and I respect them they just don't get it and the entire ministries have been based upon the days of noah and they're making complete leaps with the analogy the whole point of the analogy with noah is to say just as in the day of noah they were warned about a coming judgment and they missed the warning they ignored it and guess what they got swept away in judgment and who got rescued noah and the righteous the eight that were ready in the same way the second coming is going to happen the same time you could not ask for more clear warnings He's just laid it out for him in the Olivet Discourse. Seal, trumpet, bold judgments, everything. And yet, many will miss it. So be ready. You can summarize the analogy of Noah in two words. Be ready. That's all he's saying. You know, an analogy is just that. When you make an analogy, you, you, you consider only the big picture, the main point. You don't get down into the details. And people make that mistake all the time when interpreting parables through this sort of mystical, spiritual uh feelings-based approach. So they'll go, for example, to the parable of the ten virgins, and they'll say, oh, the oil represents this, and the lamp represents this, and the darkness represents this, and the walking to the feast, and they, they give identity to every little detail in the parable. And again, all he's saying is, be ready. <laughs> five of them were ready, five of them weren't. Which side do you want to be on? Be ready, be ready, be ready. The Son of Man comes at an hour you do not know. The same thing is true of Noah. Don't go in and talk about the the types of things that were happening in Noah's day are necessarily going to come back. Now, we do know from other passages that some of the the demonic activity that was taking place around the time of Noah, going back to Genesis 6, is definitely going to recur. But we know that not from Jesus' reference, passing reference to Noah as an example of those that weren't ready, even though judgment was clearly being announced, we know that from passages like Jude and 1 Peter and also the Old Testament, Genesis 6, when it says there were Nephilim in that day and also afterwards. All right, So we, I'm, not discur- I'm not discounting the views of, of a lot of Bible prophecy teachers who talk about that stuff. I talk about it. I mean, I believe in the, the whole Nephilim and the hybrid and the demonic conspiracy. I just spent 18 sessions talking about the Luciferian conspiracy. But I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind there, and I think it's an overstatement. Uh, So uh, if you compare, this is interesting, if you compare again John 14, which is the earliest reference to the rapture, to the explicit doctrinal teaching on the rapture that God revealed through the pen of the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, you see some striking parallels. Uh, Jesus said, you know, let not your heart be troubled. Paul introduces it by saying, I don't want you to sorrow like those who have no hope. Same idea. Uh, jesus says you believe in god believe also in me paul uses the word believe Uh, jesus talks about god and me and i just mentioned that and and paul talks about jesus and god Uh, jesus said i told you if it were not so i would have told you and paul says i've already uh, told you this Uh, he talks about coming again Jesus does. Paul says, talking about the coming of the Lord. Jesus says, I will receive you to myself. Paul talks about being caught up to meet the Lord. Um, And then uh, that you will be where I am, Jesus said. And that Paul says that so that you will be with the Lord. So there can be no doubt that John 14 is a rapture passage. um, And then we just get the details filled in in passages like 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. So in the remainder of our time, uh, the do- I want to talk about the doctrine of imminency. And Dean gave me a book uh, this, that I can't wait to kind of read through, and I've already sort of skimmed through. Uh, first thing I always do when I get a book is read the back, see who endorsed it, see the summary. Then I read each of the chapter titles, and then a couple of chapter titles that stand out. I read the first paragraph or two. But this is by a guy, Amir Safardi. And it's called The Day Approaching An Israeli's Message of Warning and Hope for the Last Days. Uh, from what I can tell, I agree with his big picture approach. I, there's a couple of little things I take a little differently, but he's definitely right where we are in terms of his understanding of, uh, of the end times, as best I can tell, having just skimmed it and read it. But I did like on the back of it, he said this. Um, uh, let's see if I can find it. He says that in the day approaching you will learn God's plan for the world, Israel, the church, and you. And he says, Amir points to evidence that informs us the return of the Lord is imminent. And he uses this word. Now the first thing we need to do is define imminence, right? Because a lot of people I've seen this all the time in, in you know websites and different even, even sco- allegedly scholarly works of people Rebuking the doctrine of the rapture, and you can tell they've absolutely done zero study, certainly of the Bible, but also of those who teach it, because they can't even get the words right. A lot of people say it's imminence, imminence. Well, what is imminence? That means an inherent presence. That's not what we're talking about. You know, I- you know, imminence is like, uh, you know, always there. Always, it's like kind of like the NSA. Okay, so we we might <laughs> say the NSA is imminent using this word. That's what we would say, right? That's not what we mean. A lot, a lot of people misspell it and call it eminence, you know, meaning high rank or, or high regard. So you might refer to some VIP official as his eminence, right? Well, that's not what we mean either. The term is imminent or eminence, which means at any moment. And it is a biblical doctrine that is plain as day for those who are not predisposed against it and let the Bible speak clearly. What we mean by the doctrine of imminency is that the rapture could happen at any moment. There's nothing that has to precede it. It is the next great prophetic event to occur in the world. Uh, The next prophetic event is the rapture, and it is a signless event. Now, I realize that it's been 2,000 years... And the church has been looking up and being watchful, so to speak, and we still haven't seen the rapture. And so, understandably, hope begins to wane. And particularly in the Middle Ages, when people were not able to really read the Bible for themselves and they were taking their cue from Rome, uh, they became convinced and then passed it down for generations that there was no rapture, that we are living in the kingdom today. It's a kingdom now approach, and the church has replaced Israel. And so, it's a it's a deception that has strong strangleholds on a lot of people. But that said, we can show you know very excellent research. And, and Tommy Ice has been one of the premier scholars on this. He's a professor at Calvary University. And he also is the executive director of the pre Research Group. And he's written journal article after journal article showing how through the centuries and every century there is evidence in writing of a Belief in a two-fold return of Christ, once for the church, later for Israel. So it was not entirely absent, but in in a manner of speaking, that really doesn't matter anyway because we don't take our doctrine from church history, we take it from the Bible. So it wouldn't bother my theology even if you couldn't find any evidence of a belief in the rapture throughout the ages. It wouldn't change my view because the Bible is the only standard for my beliefs, attitudes, and practices. But the only reason I bring that up is because, again, there are naive and ignorant Bible teachers out there who, who dismiss the rapture with the imperious wave of a hand and act like, oh, those people are nuts that believe that. And they, no one ever believed that until the 1800s, they say. Well, that's simply provably false. In every century, you can find traces of a remnant that, like Paul and like the early first century church and the generations that followed, believed in expected and were looking for the return of the Lord to meet them in the air. And so uh, it's a signless event. I like what this uh, uh, billboard in front of a church said. Uh, uh, you, you guys know what this means, right? You're not good, fa- you're not good uh, text messengers. Uh, you only live once. Laugh out loud. Just kidding. Be right back. Jesus. He's coming right back. Now, again, it's been two thousand years, and you know uh, people begin to, to lose a hope. Uh, oh, I guess I had it on the screen. I should have put it on there. Sorry. You only live once. Laugh out loud, just getting B right back, Jesus, and that's really the promise of the rapture. So let's look at some key passages uh, that relate to the doctrine of imminency. Um, first of all, we could think of 1 Corinthians sixteen twenty-two. I think I mentioned this earlier. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, then be cursed. O Lord, come. That's the Aramaic phrase, Maranatha. Maranatha. Ana, our, thou, come. And, and then Lord, mar, our Lord, come. Uh, now this phrase, this prayer of the early church, remember 1 Corinthians written in 56 AD, only makes sense if at any moment or imminent understanding of the Lord's return was in play why if you thought the Lord wasn't going to come for at least seven years and none of the things that have to happen before the Lord's return had happened yet why would you say oh Lord come why would you say that in fact if you understand that the Lord's coming is not going to come until to happen until after the second after the tribulation and you know plainly from Daniel and all the prophets Zechariah um, and then, of course, Jesus' own teaching, uh, you know, how dreadful things are going to be in the time right before the Lord's return. I don't know about you, but I'd say, uh, Lord, hold off a bit, you know. I, I don't don't come right now. I don't want to have to go through that seven years. Just uh, give me some more time. I'm not quite ready for the hell that's going to break loose on earth right before you come. Maranatha only makes sense if an imminent return of the Lord was understood. 1 corinthians begins I, that was the end of the letter i've mentioned this before that it's a, it's bookended by imminency basically it's bookended by imminency it starts out in chapter one talking about how we're eagerly waiting for the revelation the unveiling of our lord jesus christ uh, again how, why would you be eagerly waiting for something that you knew was not going to happen for at least seven years right you know it'd be like you know you're you're you're, let's let's fast forward to a month from now let's assume biden is wreaking havoc on the world with his communist socialist policies and i walk into the living room and i ask my wife uh, who's sitting in front of the tv what are you doing she says oh i'm waiting for the election returns i say what election returns?" she says the 2024 election returns i'm like honey i understand these are desperate times but pretty sure they're not going to air the election returns for 2024 for at least four more years You just wouldn't eagerly wait for something that's not going to happen imminently, would you, right? Paul uses that same word, eagerly wait. It's the word opec I've talked about this before. It's used only seven times in the New Testament, uh, and all seven times it refers to the rapture. Opec Paul says our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for the Savior. Uh, It means to expect something anxiously, to look forward to something eagerly with hope. To be in a continual state of expectancy. First um, Thessalonians one. Uh, we should wait for his son from heaven. Right? Wait for his son from heaven. I mean all kinds of implications would be in play if in fact the rapture was the same thing as the second coming, as so many suggest, and it wasn't going to happen until after a whole series of events taking seven years occur. So, I mean, what if there was someone who was 95 years old in the audience listening to this or reading this letter in Thessalonica? It seems like Paul would need to put a little asterisk and say, you know, wait for a son from heaven. Well, you know, most of you might see him, but those of you that are uh, likely to die within the next two or three years, you're not going to see him, right? So you wouldn't use this language in any sense if it wasn't imminent. Yeah. Couldn't you eagerly? Couldn't you be under persecution? You eagerly wait for that to be uh, done. If you hated President Bush, uh, Trump, and he was elected, you're eagerly waiting for the next president. You can't stand whoever, or, or, or you know, name whatever. If you're if you're being uh, being punished. And you're a child. And you're being punished for your parents. You eagerly wait for that to be over because you can't wait to be done with whatever the punishment is. Yeah, no, I think that's right. But if that's all opedekamai meant, then sure, we could say, "Boy, I, 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 can't wait for this to be over." Right. But what did opedekamai mean? To be in a continual state of expectancy. It's more than just, "Boy, this is terrible. I'm just, I I'm, can't wait for it to be over." And I'm just going to bear up under it. And boy, I can't wait till 2024 comes or until or the second coming happens. It's more than that. It's an eager expectation of something imminent. That's what apedekamai means. To expect anxiously, not to look forward to. You're using it in the concept, context of looking forward to something. But the, the Greek word has a sense of imminent rescue. Yeah. So I have a friend that was the admin assistant for Dr. Walverd when he was president yeah. of Dallas Theological Seminary. And he was so anxiously looking forward to that that he never bought green bananas. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah, I had Dr. And, uh for the doctrine of the rapture. That was the class. And I also interacted with him through the years until he passed away about 10 years ago now, I think. Uh, time goes by pretty fast. But, uh, but yeah, he lived what he taught. And that's kind of what I'm hoping the takeaway will be from uh, today's uh, lesson. So uh, just a couple more things here and then I'll uh, wrap it up. So clearly 1 John 2, 28, the same thing. Little children abide in him so that when he appears, you'll have confidence. Well, if you knew he wasn't coming for at least seven more years, then, you know, you could say, well, I'll abide in him, but I don't, there's no urgency now. (laughs) I got time, right? I don't have to stay close to Him. I can eat, drink, and be merry, and I'll straighten up my life right before uh, the final six months of the tribulation, right? Uh, Or 1 Timothy 6, 14. You should keep this commandment so that you're blameless until our Lord's appearing. Again, the language here is not one of of an arrival on a due date, but something unexpected, something that is, again, imminent. And it's called the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We see it in Hebrews. We're going to look at this, not this week, but next week, when he says that to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time. Right? Uh, Same word, apic In fact, if Paul wrote Hebrews, which we don't know for sure that he did, but I'm inclined to think that he did, then all seven usages of apic not only do they all refer to the rapture, but they're all by Paul, who's the one who introduced the doctrine of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4. So it just sort of makes sense. And again, another watchfulness or imminence language here is the Lord is at hand. Well, can it really be said that the Lord is at hand if He's not coming for seven more years at least? See, because of the, the teaching about the second coming you know, in Revelation, Revelation, here's a big earth-shattering news, by the way. Pay close attention. You might want to write this down. Revelation 19, stay with me comes after Revelation 6 to 18, right? Pretty basic. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says, After the Tribulation, the Son of Man will come and take the throne. So, clearly, the Second Coming occurs after at least seven years. And since the Tribulation hasn't started yet, we can say it could be longer than seven years from now. Is it really at hand, that being the case, right? So, uh, lots of reasons that the church will not go through the tribulation. We've looked at several of them, so I'll just summarize them here. I talked about how the 490-year prophecy with Daniel was made exclusively with Israel and is totally Jewish in nature. There is no mention of the church in any passage that describes the tribulation. You know, the word church is used all through the epistles, everywhere, all kinds of things about church. You should do this, you shouldn't do that, you should be this, you should do this. When you talk about the tribulation, the church never comes up. There's no mention of the church in the book of Revelation after chapter 3. When does the the tribulation happen? Chapters 6 to 18, right? Uh, Again, the tribulation is called a time of Jacob's trouble. Who's Jacob? Israel. Uh, The church in Revelation is represented by the 24 elders, and they're already there, In heaven, surrounding the throne, asking who is worthy to open the seals of wrath and start the judgment. Who is worthy? Who is worthy? They're gathered around the the throne, untold millions. They're already in heaven before the tribulation even starts, right? Uh, And again, the doctrine of imminency uh, demands it. And the descriptions of the rapture as bringing comfort and blessing do not comport with the descriptions of judgment and wrath that come with Christ's post-tribulation rapture. And finally, when the believers uh, come, I mean when the Lord comes, believers will be coming with Him to take the throne and rule and reign with Him. So I'll have to leave it there. There's a lot more that we could uh, talk about. but I want to close out by making reference to this uh, little sign. I put some of these on the table at the back. Unfortunately, I don't have any way to really mail these out so we don't sell them on our online store. But this says, to whom it may concern, and now this was a sign, not this one, but I've replicated it, that was on my grandparents' door ever from the time I knew them till they died. My grandfather was a preacher. It was tattered and torn. I still have it in a file. It was by their doorbell. And they lived, like John, like Dr. Walvoord said, or like Ann said, Dr. Walvoord did, what they taught, what he taught. And because they believed in the imminent return of the Lord, they had this note that attached to their door. The believers of this household are looking for the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. When it occurs, it will suddenly be discovered that millions of people are missing, and this home will be found empty. Then may you realize that the Christian church has been taken out of the world, an event clearly prophesied in the Bible, and he lists the references. It will mean that Christ has called His people, those who are saved by grace through faith in Him, to ever be with the Lord. Do not search for us, We will return with Christ after seven years of tribulation, Revelation chapter 6 to 18, when he comes to judge the Antichrist and take the throne of his father David as promised him. In the meantime, do not weep for us, for we are finally home. Now, if you really believe what the Bible teaches, why wouldn't you put something like this up? And we have one hanging by our door in our house that we've had for years uh, as well. So if you want one of these, uh, the church purchased a few of them. They're back there on the table. They're five bucks. Just put five bucks in the thing to rec- help the church recover the cost. If you don't have five bucks, but you want it, just take one. We want to, to get that message out and you can hang that up uh, in your house. All right. You, you understand eminency? You with me? Doctor, eminency is critical. Um, and, uh, and we're going to continue on next week with talking about Daniel's 490 year plan which will undergird and further explain this notion of a mystery, how the church was not revealed in the Old Testament, and yet the teaching of the Old Testament clearly allowed for it. And we'll kind of see this remarkable prophecy that's fulfilled to the day in Daniel chapter 9. All right, thank you. We'll be dismissed.